0: Hey, Big Biology listeners, we're moving into a more intensive period of fundraising over the next
1: few months, so you'll notice a couple of changes to our show. First, we're experimenting with putting ads in our episodes that appear on Spotify, which is where most of your Big Biology fix comes from. In upcoming shows and a set of older ones, you'll now hear two or three short ad breaks during the hour. We don't necessarily want to do this, but realize that we have to if
0: we're going to keep the show going.
1: Second. We're going to be making increasingly aggressive pleas for donations and Patreon signups.
0: Uh, like right now?
1: Yes. Like right now. We're not a big operation, but producer Molly, interns Dana, Keating, and webmaster Steve really depend on your funding.
0: Great. Okay. Right now you should go to our website, www.bigbiology.org and make a
1: donation. Or you can go to patreon.com slash bigbio and become a patron for just a few dollars per month. Patrons get cool insider stuff
0: like access to behind the scenes audio and extras from our guests about their lives, their
1: hobbies, and their careers. Now on to the intro for our show today.
0: From our human perspective, it can be hard to grasp the
1: timescales over which life has diversified on our planet. 4.5 billion years. It's easy to say, but how long is that really? For example, how long ago did dinosaurs go extinct compared to something like the Cambrian explosion or the origin of eukaryotes? We can put numbers on those things. It's really hard to hold the relative times in our minds.
0: When I used to teach intro bio in a very large stadium classroom at the University of Montana, I illustrated this problem with what we called the rope of time, an idea that I got from Eric Green. It was a rope cut to 45 meters in length meant to represent the time since the earth formed. I make that out to be a hundred million years per meter of rope. You got it. I'd have student volunteers set up the rope so that it went from the upper seats on one side down around the podium at the front, and back up the other side. Then I'd give the students a series of 10 to 15 printed cards naming major events in Earth's history, and they had to commit to placing them at specific locations on the rope.
1: I'm guessing things like origin of life, great oxygenation events, the Cambrian explosion, origins of mammals, rise of dinosaurs, fall of dinosaurs, things like that? That's
0: it and moving on to more recent events like the evolutionary origins of homo sapiens and the start of world war one what's grand about this exercise is how many of the things that we think of as happening long ago are crammed right up against the now end of the rope for example the kt boundary 66 million years ago in which the dinosaurs largely disappeared is just two-thirds of a meter from the end our species arises just two to three millimeters from the end,
1: and World War I started about a micron back. The lesson is that life has existed and diversified through periods of time that are inconceivably vast, which is not exactly the topic of our show today, but sets an important stage for it. Today, we talk about some of the biggest, most important processes, besides long
0: periods of time, that have shaped the evolution and diversification of life.
1: Again, from our modern perspective, As evolutionary biologists observing plants and animals, it's easy to think we understand the basic evolutionary processes that generate diversity and the patterns of relatedness described by phylogenetic trees. But that facile view may not be the same as
0: understanding, as there remain many open questions about the identities of the most important factors and processes that have shaped deep-time evolution.
1: For example, what's the role of contingency? If you could run the quote-unquote Earth experiment over again, starting several billion years ago, would the living world resemble ours at all today? Some writers think the contingency is so important that there's simply no way that it could.
0: Writers such as Stephen Jay Gould, who proposed
1: his famous
0: replaying the tape of life metaphor. Another is Sean Carroll, who we interviewed in episode 51 about his book on contingency.
1: Sean argues, for example, that the asteroid impact at the KT boundary was an extraordinarily unlikely event, and that if the asteroid had merely grazed the Earth, or had struck even a few tens of minutes on either side of when it did, plunging it either into the Atlantic or the Pacific rather than into Central America, it would not have driven the dinosaurs so thoroughly extinct and wiped the table so clean for the rise of mammals.
0: Other scientists have proposed that other major factors are needed to explain the shape of life's history including things like increases in complexity, the appearance of truly novel traits, systematic shifts in the kinds and intensities of ecological interactions, the processes of coevolution, and the origins of sleeping beauty traits, which we discussed with Andreas Wagner in episode 104.
1: Today's guest, Gary Vermeer, is a paleoecologist and evolutionary biologist in the Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences at UC Davis. He's also a member of the National Academy of Sciences and has published over 200 papers and five books. Our chat with Gary focuses on his 2023 book
0: called The Evolution of Power, A New Understanding of the History of Life. Gary proposes
1: that increases in power are a defining feature of life and that understanding how species acquire and use power eliminates both contemporary problems in biology and the evolutionary history of life on Earth. For example, early
0: groups of bacteria and archaea rose and fell based on the kinds of new metabolic
1: machinery that they evolved for unlocking more power. And the symbiosis that gave us eukaryotes represented a vast increase in the power available to individual cells. Subsets of those cells obviously evolved into all the macro multicellular organisms that you see around us, which rely on the power their mitochondria provide.
0: On slightly more contemporary timescales, the relative success of different groups of vertebrates may in part stem from shifts in jaw structure, the morphology and physiology
1: of muscles, and
0: cardiorespiratory
1: systems, all of which unlock more power. And on much more contemporary timescales, cultural evolution among humans has led to vast increases in power available to individuals and to societies in which we
0: live. We talk with Gary about the origins of the human capacity to use so much power and the consequences that it's having for other species and for our climate. I'm Cameron Gallenbord.
1: And I'm Art Woods. And you're listening to Big Biology.
0: Gary Vermeer, excellent to talk to you today on Big Biology.
2: I'm delighted to be here.
0: We're looking forward to talking to you, among other things, about your newly published book called The Evolution of Power, A New Understanding of History of Life. But before that, we wanted to rewind the tape a little bit. Cam had some questions about some of your earlier
1: work. Yeah, so I'm extremely honored to be talking to you today. I read your autobiography as a graduate student and found it extremely inspiring And I became familiar with your research as a graduate student in the 1990s. I read your book, Biogeography and Adaptation and Evolution and Escalation. And the significance of those books for me and and maybe for the, the field as a whole was that we could look at the fossil record and not just come up with like a catalog of species and how they've changed over time, but we could also infer a lot about the ecological processes that were going on by looking at changes in distribution and changes in morphology and patterns of coexistence. And so I was just really wanted to get your opinion and hear a little bit about how how you've seen the field of paleontology and paleobiology change over the course of your lifetime.
2: It's complicated. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I represent a part of paleontology and a part of evolutionary biology that emphasizes, if you will, natural history. What are organisms like? What do they do? How well do they do it? That turns out today, at least, to be a minority point of view because there's a whole school of thought about long-term patterns in, for example, diversity or disparity or any other global measure of how many species there are, and so on, without really taking account of interactions or of the properties of the organisms they're talking about.
1: That seems so strange to me as an evolutionary ecologist that studies birds and fish and insects. Why is it that you think that perspective has remained sort of a minority view?
2: I think paleontology had the reputation of stamp collecting. You know, we're describing new species, for example, or discovering new sites. And it it all seemed very particular. And it is certainly true that many paleontologists didn't think about the bigger questions. What I do very much is I am very much of an observationist. But at the same time, I'm really interested in large principles, evolutionary principles, and how things have changed over time and i think it is important to bear both things in mind that you're not just doing it to describe but you're trying to explain and there is an interesting difference i think between description and explanation
0: maybe if you could say just a little more about what you mean by escalation and how the interactions among these entities that you're studying in the past have led to you know sort of systematic changes in in form and function
2: so organisms of course live in a very difficult world of opportunities and challenges, and the argument about escalation is that much of the natural selection that organisms are exposed to comes from their rivals or their enemies, if you will, or their competitors, competitors, predators, disease agents, and so on. It used to be thought that much selection could also come from your prey, from the things you eat. But there is a, an inherent asymmetry in the selective intensity, and I hold that the greater intensity comes from one's enemies. Of course, it can occasionally be true that prey can also be enemies because they can harm an individual. But on the whole, there is this interesting asymmetry.
0: And just to follow up on that, so you know, if we're thinking about different kinds of escalation, so... We're imagining the evolution, say, of armor plating or thicker shells or tougher shells in response to predators that are exerting this consistent selection on them.
2: So you can have escalation in any number of different directions. One of them, of course, and the one that I've probably spent the most time on, is indeed in passive armor. But you can also imagine escalation having to do with locomotion. You know, how fast are you? How maneuverable are you? And also in connection with, for example, communication or being seen or not to be seen. So there there are many dimensions along which escalation can proceed. Got it.
1: Yeah, interesting. So I can see then a, a natural sort of progression from thinking about how predator-prey interactions can escalate evolutionary change to thinking about how Ecological interactions can also lead to the evolution of power, which you write about in your recent book. So is that fair? Is is that a natural progression in your thinking and and how you you got to this place to write this book?
2: Yes, it's absolutely fair. And one might even ask, why didn't I do that much earlier? (laughs) (laughs) But you know, better late than never, I suppose. And the idea is that power, which is, of course, how much energy you can take up and expend, per unit time, exemplifies what organisms do when they interact with each other. So it's a direct measure, if you will, of interactions and their consequences. So yes, it's perfectly natural to have come from a general view of escalation to the more, if you will, powerful idea that power influences directions of evolution. So
0: you just define power for us, so you know, amount of energy that you can apply per unit time
2: or take up per unit time
0: or take up, yeah, so that, that's sort
2: of like an engineering or physics point of view that would invoke watts. Very much so in, in fact, uh, I have a little subheading in my book, what is power? <laughs> <laughs> Love it we're, we're
0: big fans of dumb jokes, so that's great <laughs> I just wanted to ask though, is, is there another sense in which you mean power, like in in the sense of uh, having influence, so you know some kind of broader
2: ecological or political power, very much so. But I would also argue that power as influence is an expression of real engineering type power. In other words, you're having a, a huge effect for any of a variety of reasons. But yes, I think those things are inextricably related to each other.
1: But you know, as as an evolutionary biologist. I'm also kind of curious about the focus on power as, as a currency, a general currency that you could use versus other types of currencies. Obviously, fitness would be one option or
2: energy just in general. So I, I consider energy as being the currency. Power, on the other hand, is how one uses or how one takes up energy. So I, I do want to make that distinction. And I should just add that fitness, I think, is a measure of power, of reproductive power. Yeah.
1: So if I just, you know, summarize that, we have energy as currency that can be applied and stored and used in the form of power. And power is then a correlate of
2: fitness. Fitness is part of it. So. One can also think of power as productivity in an ecosystem, for instance, because that's how much biomass is being produced per unit time. So that's exactly the units of power. And so there are many other ways of expressing power. The the wonderful thing about power is it has many dimensions. And so you can lay out all the possibilities of what can be maximized or what can be minimized. So as a competitor, you want to increase your power and to decrease the power of your rivals
1: and in the context of say something very small like a virus which looking at it you know as a human would seem to have very little power and yet at the same time is able to hijack an organism's physiological machinery to its advantage that also seems like a a type of power that could play out even though the organism is very small
2: well yes except that a single virus or a single bacterium can't possibly do it. So they need to do it in huge numbers. And number, of course, is another dimension of power. And so that's an important point of view, actually, because social existence, especially coordinated social life or social interaction, is a very potent way of expressing and using power.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because, yeah, Art and I were talking about that earlier, about the relationship between power and cooperation and, and sociality and how that can kind of unlock and unleash power that a single individual would not have access to.
2: That's correct. And this applies in particular to ecosystems, because no matter what an organism can do, you cannot do it in the absence of a whole circular working ecosystem. And so I I think it's also important to apply the notions of power to how ecosystems work. I guess I wanted to turn now and
0: use this idea of power that we've developed and just state what I view as one of the central theses of your book, which is that if you look at the evolutionary history of life on Earth, you can see a sort of long series of events that have involved innovations that have unleashed more power that power sort of provides an organizing scaffold for understanding the diversification of life on Earth. First of all, do you agree with that summary? And second of all, can you just give us an example of one of these major events that's
2: caused a change in how power is applied? First of all, yes, I do agree. I would add that life and innovations are cumulative. So one innovation tends to be built up on another. And that's that's rather important. That's true in human economics and it's true in the economics of life, other than human life, that is to say. So an example would be the evolution of flight. You know, there are, of course, insects and there are pterosaurs, bats and birds. In the latter case, flight may have evolved more than once, probably did. And in each case, that opened up whole new opportunities. It also provided a lot more power. And organisms had to cope with that you know and so that's just one out of numerous examples one could also say deep roots for plants where they were able to gain access to minerals in rocks that other plants and fungi were unable to do by themselves Symbioses are another very good example of innovations which of course have evolved literally thousands perhaps tens of thousands of times
0: but among which the the origins of eukaryotes seem
2: particularly important. Yes, <laughs> but also say the the partnerships between plants and root fungi or uh, nitrogen fixing uh, bacteria in uh, legumes, for example.
1: So if we think about the process of diversification and these sort of cumulative changes that you were talking about, you know, I, I often think about that from the perspective of selection and adaptive evolution, driving speciation and diversity. But I, I was really interested on your perspective because you kind of diverge from from what I would think of as a maybe in my mind a a more traditional view not only because of your focus on power but but also your invoking of agency as another attribute of life I'm curious can you can you define what you mean by by agency and the distinction between power and agency
2: yeah agency to me is doing something and as I say, borrowing a term from J.S. Turner, it's making the future. So, no matter whether you're a plant or an animal or a fungus or a virus, living things can do things. They modify their own surroundings and they often move in such a way that they enhance their own opportunities. So I think agency is a crucial aspect, perhaps the most crucial aspect of a living thing. and. Agency together with natural selection, I think, accounts for all the evolution that we see. It isn't just natural selection, but it is truly also agency. Organisms have a hand in their own evolution.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. And I I think, you know, when we see the way living organisms interact with their environments, that, that seems very obvious. But I also struggle a little bit with agency because agency also seems a lot like an emergent property of organisms in that is also something that is itself a product of natural selection?
2: Perhaps. That depends a little bit on how one thinks about it. I do agree that agency is an emergent property of life and that having agency and given that survival and reproduction are also emergent goals, if you like, of organisms, that necessarily leads to natural selection. So I consider natural selection also to be an emergent and fundamental property of life. I was excited to read your thoughts about agency. I've been a a sort of big fan of the
0: idea, and I've really started to think about it in the last couple of years. And I come at it from a very sort of organismal perspective, uh, organismal physiology background. But when I talk to other biologists about agency, one thing that I often hear is, Well, how is that different from what we already know about the way organisms behave or act in the world? It's just another sort of jargon word that we don't need that doesn't invoke anything new. How do you respond to that?
2: I tend not to like jargon, (laughs) but there are times when using a word coalesces an idea. And yes, I'm sure all behaviorists are totally aware of agency, But if you read that literature, they tend to talk about natural selection only and not about how an organism's own actions influence that natural selection. Uh, There are exceptions, you know, always. There are people who've thought about these things, but on the whole, the mainstream does not.
1: Yeah, a few weeks ago, we we talked with Eric Svensson from Lund University, and we talked about the interplay and what what he referred to as sort of the reciprocal causation between organisms and their environments, and how potentially agency and a lot of other kinds of interactions that involve feedback that are not where you know populations or organisms aren't simply passive players in a kind of a linear interaction with the environment, but they they interact with their environments in ways that cause feedbacks. And I think among like evolutionary ecologists, you see the the term eco-evolutionary dynamics trying to capture some of this type of feedback and reciprocal causation. Is that a, a way of describing it
2: that resonates with you? It's too jargony for my taste. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Speaking of anti-jargon. <laughs> right.
2: So I tend to think, I just talk about feedback, period. And I think one of the legacies we have from the Enlightenment is that we tend to think about cause and effect, whereas I think for the whole realm of life, what we really should be talking about is feedbacks. So it it isn't just one cause causing an effect, but the effect has an effect, if you will, on the cause. It's a feedback. And to me, that is absolutely fundamental to how we should think about interaction. Literally, interaction means action between things, which implies a feedback.
1: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window.
0: Now ask about, you have several chapters in the middle of your book that lay out the different ways that lineages can evolve greater power, and you sort of put some meat on those bones. And, or, or shells, perhaps, right? <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry to invoke bones. <laughs> and those three ways are greater size, faster movements, and greater violence, and those, I think, make a lot of sense to me. If you had to sort of say, you know, which of those is most important or how do they go together, what what would you say to that?
2: I think anything that is more active is more important. So I do start with size, which is the most passive response. But if you think about locomotion, by which I don't mean just speed, but also agility and so on, and especially the evolution of force or violence, course, there's force involved in locomotion as well. I think that is perhaps the most important part of the story.
0: Mm -hmm. So greater violence, I mean, I guess we could conceive of that as the evolution of strategies or tools for applying lots of power, right, to a particular point.
2: Yeah. So I talk about venom. I talk about, obviously, teeth and claws and And of course, in in the end, I have a few things to say about guns. And plants have not been inactive in this respect at all. And one other thing that I think is really important to emphasize here is that when it comes to mate selection, it may not always be violent, sometimes it is, but very often it does entail the extraordinary use of power in order to attract or to keep one's mates. And I think that's actually a very important part of many animals and plant lives.
1: Yeah, I I agree. And I think we often make this distinction between um, natural selection and sexual selection. Yeah, I don't. (laughs) And I could see that as I was reading that those ideas were sort of merged together. And I was wondering if that was yeah on purpose or if when you take this sort of more power perspective, the distinction kind of goes away.
2: To me, it goes away, and I would argue that, in fact, sexual selection, or let's call it mate-related selection, is, it cannot be separated really from natural selection, because you're often emphasizing the same kinds of advantages.
1: Yeah, so if I think about, for example, size in the context of two competitors versus size differences among males in the same species competing for females would that be an example where the mechanism may not matter but what we're moving towards in both cases is the evolution of greater power and the ability to exert your will
2: yeah so that that's what i would argue i say somewhere in the book i don't remember where that some of the extraordinary displays behavioral and and other displays which require a huge amount of power, might actually benefit the organism in its competition for other resources as well. And Many people have thought about it in the reverse direction, but I think that sexual selection may actually be one agency that makes natural selection even more powerful.
1: Yeah, as, as I was reading, I was envisioning elephant seals that were, you know, big males fighting with each other and battling over over females, and then an elephant seal running into a, a much smaller, you know, seal and you know treating it <laughs> very poorly and uh, exerting violence upon it.
2: <laughs> yeah, my notion came from crabs, where crab claws are both used in display and in fighting with other crabs, but also as weapons for feeding. Yeah, yeah. There's one other thing I should say, and that is that, of course, power depends a lot on how the environment affects power and so there are always going to be limitations on power due to things like low temperatures or low productivity and so on so it isn't unlimited power except perhaps in the human case
0: yeah well that's a great segue to the the next section that we wanted to discuss with you so you know cam and i are obviously fans of of your ideas about power, but we also spent some time trying to think of ways that, you know, if you had to poke holes in this idea of power as an organizing principle, what might they be? And it feels like an obvious one is that exerting lots of power requires that you be able to take up lots of resources, and those resources and energy may not always be around. And, you know, you can imagine circumstances in which having less power or a very low energy lifestyle is actually the fitter thing to do. So how do
2: you reconcile those two threads? Easily, (laughs) I would argue that having great power also brings risk. Those plentiful resources may not always be there, and if they're not, you're not gonna survive, period. But for those organisms that use less power, they can survive, but on the other hand, there is always going to be selection, even in those organisms, for as much power as they can manage, given the resources. So it's all kind of normalized to the power that's available from the local environments. Yes. So it, it all depends on what I call enabling factors.
1: But in some cases, it would seem that the accumulation or acquisition of more power also results in greater vulnerability.
2: Yes, it does. Very much so. And of course, in human history, we've always known that, right? The most powerful are also the most precarious in many ways.
1: Mm-hmm. But I think if, I can't think of a a specific reference, but I seem to recall that large-bodied organisms tend to have a greater risk of extinction, both on contemporary timescales in the Anthropocene, but also when we've had these mass extinction events, they disproportionately fall out.
2: That's correct. It's a very consistent pattern. I think the first person who ever pointed that out was Lee Van Valen. but yes, it happens all the time. And it's because the system has failed to produce the resources. So when you get mass extinctions, you know, the whole bottom falls out of the productivity system. And well, that is curtained for the most powerful.
1: Right, right. So I'd like to talk a little bit about another kind of angle on the evolution of power, sort of related to this idea of the, the sort of limits and constraints imposed by the environment, but also more specifically on the trade-offs. And this is a, a deeply personal question for my research interest, because in uh, collaboration with Paul Martin at Queen's University in Canada, we've been very interested in asymmetric competitive interactions. And one thing that we recently published on was across the tree of life, we see this very repeated pattern where closely related species replace each other along environmental gradients. And it's always the case that the the reason for the turnover across the gradient is because one species, typically larger, it has an asymmetric advantage and is competitively dominant and excludes the subordinate species and restricts the subordinate species to more stressful less preferred part of the environmental gradient. But in looking at studies that do removals, when you remove the subordinate, the larger dominant species cannot expand into the stressful part of the gradient. It doesn't have the physiological or ecological ability to to live in those kinds of environments. And it really does seem that the evolution of greater size and power and the ability to competitively exclude come at the expense of being able to tolerate these kind of more stressful conditions. How important do you think these kinds of trade-offs are in sort of putting the brakes on how far power can evolve?
2: It's hard to say. Your perspective is probably from vertebrates, whereas I tend to think more about plants and so on. One thing I would say is that some of the replacements that you're talking about among closely related species More often than not, the replacement is actually by a different lineage, which may have, for historical reasons, has the right physiological tolerances to be able to expand into a vacated, quote, niche, unquote. I think that the limits to power are influenced by one's inferior competitors. They do reduce, because of your trade-offs, they do reduce your potential power. So I I think trade-offs are fundamental, and that's because there is no such thing as A, perfection, or B, resource, quantity, and productivity. There are always going to be limits, and organisms have to negotiate those challenges in an evolutionary way.
1: Yeah. The patterns we found were actually in plants and insects and sort of across the tree of life, but it, it also made me kind of think more deeply about the integration of traits. And, you know, a lot of attention has been given historically to allometric relationship and how things scale with body size. But I I was really sort of captivated and started thinking a lot more about how power might change or be constrained by the way in which Traits within an organism are integrated together and how they work together, and and how that might be related to the kinds of specific trade offs that they experience.
2: Well, of course, the more power you have, the fewer trade offs you need to worry about. Or at least you're shifting the balance, right? So if you have less power, the trade offs are going to be pretty bad. And innovations that enable you to get greater power reduce those trade offs. And then you can do more than one thing at a time. Gary, I wanted to run
0: another idea by you. This is uh, also kind of a a personal interest of mine, something I've been thinking about over the last few years, and, and that is that there's, in my view, two ways to unlock fitness gains. One of them is to find new ways to be more powerful. The subject of your book It seems like another way to do that is to find new ways to use information productively and thereby to require less power. So the path is to have less power, but to use it more effectively. And here's, here's a metaphor. And if you thought about how to rob a bank, you could drive your powerful pickup truck at high speed into a wall and knock a giant hole in it before grabbing the cash and driving away. Or you can sneak in at night with a stolen key and sort of quietly unlock the vault and take what you want and then go away. And so a, like... A biological analog that I've considered is beetle grubs in a in a log, right? So many things are interested in eating those beetle grubs. A bear, which is very powerful, might tear that log up and lap up the beetle larvae, whereas a parasitoid wasp can sense vibrations and stick a very small ovipositor down into the, the beetle larvae to get to those resources.
2: And kill just one beetle. That's
0: true. Yeah. But to me, they seem like kind of fundamentally different ways of getting to the resources that you want, you know, one involves power, one involves information. And so, you know, do you think is information another organizing idea or organizing currency that you could use to explain the history of life on Earth in the same way that you've done so
2: with power? Right. So there's a, a recent paper, which I read with really great interest by Long et al. It was in PNAS, I think. and this paper also made the point that well the whole organizing principle of life is information my problem with information and with energy itself as a currency is if you don't use it it isn't any good to anybody the thing that i like about the idea of power is that it implies an interaction whereas information is a more static thing just like energy is a more static thing without power it doesn't go anywhere Now, you're right. You know, there are different ways of doing things. Now, I would argue that using more information requires quite a lot more brain power, literally power. It requires a substantial investment in the neural infrastructure. So the immediate costs might be low, but the ultimate costs are quite high.
0: I guess I would say using information doesn't necessarily require nervous systems and cognition. So to circle back to something you brought up a few minutes ago, you mentioned venom. To me, venom is less about power because, you know, venom doesn't exert watts. It exploits chinks in the sort of informational landscape, right, to disrupt interactions in cell membranes and on ion transporters. And, and to me, that's like an informational way that snakes and other things that have venom have found to succeed. Except that venom is very expensive to make. Okay, yeah, touche, right.
2: But, but the essence is, is one of exploiting information, right? It's just a different way of doing things, but venoms and snakes and cone snails and so forth, millipedes, centipedes rather, have multiple kinds of venoms, and they're incredibly expensive to make.
1: So, kind of following on, on Art's point, can we think about the accumulation, the increasing accumulation of power in the absence of this type of like information exploitation? Because it seems like, back to your point about agency, a very good agent would also... Be very good at exploiting information in its environment.
2: I think that's true, but I would argue that in order to do that, you're going to need uh, a very substantial infrastructure.
1: And by infrastructure, do you mean the sort of internal cognitive ability or the external kind of landscape?
2: I would argue mostly the internal, but of course there's, there's going to be feedbacks here as well.
0: Gary, we were also quite interested in the comments you made about the roles of contingency in the evolutionary history of life on Earth. And, you know, just thinking about whether or not, if, you know, to invoke this famous metaphor, if you were to replay the the tape of life, would things turn out more or less the same as they have? And Stephen Jay Gould, of course, argued famously argued that no, they would not. And you make the case that maybe contingencies have been the power of contingencies have been, has been overestimated and that there are organizing principles among which you name power that sort of decrease the overall effects of contingency and that we would actually see quite similar trajectories of, of life on earth over time. And I just wonder, could you maybe un- unpack that? Like what, what do we mean by contingencies and how do we get around those effects? So
2: contingency is kind of the historical stamp How did the past influence your morphology, your ecology, your limitations, and so on? And I would argue that it plays a dominant role in what an individual is or what a clade, that is to say an evolutionary branch of life does, what his trajectory is, which we can't really predict in any substantial way. So contingency has a distinct stamp in evolutionary biology. But I would say that given the role of power and natural selection agency and so forth, there are these overriding principles which at a large enough scale are not contingent because they're literally quite predictable. You can't say exactly what happens when, where, and by whom, but you can say that it will probably happen.
0: So what kinds of things can you say will probably happen?
2: Increase in power would be my number one. And an expansion of life would be a related point that I would make.
0: Okay, so it's a sort of very broad and statistical way of thinking about the patterns of diversification rather than
2: being able to predict that, you know. Well, notice that I did not use diversification. And the reason I didn't is one that I point out in the book, I think, in one or two places. We humans are a single species, by far and away the most powerful one, ever to have existed. But it's only one species.
1: Hmm. So I wanted to just kind of follow up a little bit on the distinction between predictability versus repeatability when we look at these major patterns in the evolution of life on Earth. So we can say with some caveats that there may be some general patterns in terms of predictability like the the evolution of power. But is that also contingent on seeing those patterns repeat over and over again every time there's been, like, say, a mass extinction event that kind of allows for an independent assessment of that trajectory?
2: Yeah, I think those two ideas are probably related to each other. I haven't thought deeply about repeatability except that almost every innovation that has ever been studied has evolved more than once. <laughs> Even the most unusual, we, we keep thinking that the eukaryotic union between a bacterium and an archaeon is a totally unique event in life, but actually it isn't, because symbiosis like that have happened thousands of times. So I think repeatability and predictability are kind of related to each other.
0: let's turn now more specifically to humans and think about the origins of our own power as a species both in terms of you know energy usage and maybe cultural aspects if we just think of the amounts of power that we have available to us now compared to several hundred years ago right we have vastly more available to us we can fly in planes drive cars run our computers so we can talk to each other on podcasts so, how how is it that humans are unique in this sense and how have we managed to unleash so much power?
2: Well, of course, we. I think number one is we're a social species, a, a rather highly developed social species. It doesn't mean we all cooperate all the time as we see with all the wars going on and crimes and so on and so forth, but that's very important. We also use energy sources that other organisms have not used before and we have employed tools outside our own limited bodies to do a lot of work for us. All of those are related to each other, but I would say those three things together define why we have so much more power than anybody else.
1: So when we think about the the sort of causes and consequences of humans acquiring this much power, you talk about the sort of perils of the human monopoly on this planet and I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about both what you mean specifically as a a human monopoly and whether there are other sort of analogs in the natural world that would be kind of analogous to what humans have done. or Are we in a unique sort of period of time?
2: So I would argue, along with Egbert Lee, with whom I wrote a paper about this years ago, that there really is no parallel to our monopoly. There have been and there are very brief local monopolies. There are a couple of examples of ant trees that survive for about 40 years without competition, and then somebody grows over you, and that's the end of that. But we are unusual in that we have hogged a disproportionate amount of the world's energy and we have eliminated largely through medicine and so forth we've eliminated most of our competitors which means that there's no one to tell us we're wrong as a species we can tell ourselves that it doesn't seem to be doing a lot of good but there is no force out there that limits our monopolistic power So what are the solutions? If
0: monopoly brings peril, how do we minimize that peril?
2: Well, I wish I knew. You know, I am not an optimist on this score. I mean, it's clear to me that what we need is a sort of a global human-oriented regulation, which will involve governments and should involve sort of a democratic process. But given our track record, I'm not awfully optimistic. On the other hand, I think by being made aware of the fundamental properties of our economy and our uh, monopolistic tendencies, one might hope that economists at some point will seriously consider the possibility that eternal growth is impossible. I am deeply disappointed in the economics community for not having thought seriously about how to construct a human economy that is not growing, but at the same time is healthy.
0: Yeah, I was just saying to Cam before we got on to the recording with you that I had read recently quite a few articles in different magazines, including New York Times, that have decried countries and and populations in which population growth rates are below replacement and and there's good evidence that they're going to be declining and, and then decrying the potential economic consequences of that. And it's really interesting to read, especially like letters to the editor from people who are responding to this, because many people are pointing out, well, wait a minute, you know, ecologically, this is what we need is less pressure on local areas. And the parallel thing to that is to figure out a way to have sustainable economies that don't depend
2: entirely on growth. That's right. And, you know, almost always the people who write about the aging of the population and and the declines in birth rate and so forth are saying how awful this is. And I'm thinking, no, no, this is exactly what we need. But really, I'm serious, it is time for economists to really grapple with this. I just don't think they've done it because their mode is so tied with economic growth They haven't considered other possibilities seriously. I mean, there are people who have written books about, you know, the sustainable economy and so forth. And I think a lot of that stuff is pie in the sky. But to have a real economist really grapple with this is utterly crucial. And if the Nobel Committee ever could have an influence on what prizes they give out for economics, that would be my first choice. (laughs) Have you tried to collaborate with economists on this? I have talked to economists, but on the whole, they have been dismissive. I've also submitted articles to economics journals, and they say, eh, eh, no, 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 we're not really interested. Thanks, but no thanks. Yeah, they they are not, as a group, I would have to say, from my perspective at least, they're not ready to expand their horizons.
1: I'm also curious about the sort of tension between as an evolutionary biologist between you know the benefits to the individual versus the benefits to the group. And it seems like when we when we talk about any social group of different individuals, as a group, we should recognize that there are these alternative paths that we should take towards more being more sustainable. But it's also potentially consistently going to be undermined by those few individuals that, you know, would take a more selfish perspective, and
2: and is that? This has been going on throughout the history of life, right? You have parasites, you have selfish individuals.
1: So does this <laughs> fundamentally undermine
2: our, our ability to save ourselves, or? I don't know. You know, I frankly don't know. I mean, obviously selfishness plays a huge role in human society, but so does the potential to get things done culturally and collectively, we've seen both. And I frankly don't know how it'll end up. You know, it's, it's a good question. Because I, I see it being very much linked to
1: power now, because if you have energy and you exert it in the form of power, what we are saying right now is that we're asking humans to not exert power and to hold back on exercising that And how do we do that?
2: Yeah, self-restraint, that's the problem, right? It's self-restraint. On the other hand, it is in the long term for our own good. Now, humans have famously been bad at considering long-term consequences or or doing something about them, even if they know about them, as we seem to, for example, with climate change. Humans have a terrible track record there. That's why I'm not entirely optimistic. Yeah,
1: Yeah. well, I guess, where I would find optimism is, you know, there are some some of the billionaires, I can't remember if it was like Warren Buffett or some of these people who are claiming that they will give away all of their wealth before they, you know, retire. I,
2: I approve of that, you know, and I, I actually mention people who are philanthropists. There are people who decry philanthropy. I'm not one of them because not only have I benefited from philanthropy, Myself, but I also think that they often are doing a great deal of good. Here's
0: one other human power related question, and that is thinking about, you know, in part, it seems like the damage that the human monopoly has been doing to the biosphere stems from the fact that our energy economy is still very biological in the sense that the energy is mostly carried by carbon compounds, right? We're tapping sources that were. photosynthesized hundreds of millions of years ago, we're now returning that carbon to the atmosphere, and that's what's driving a lot of the change that we see. But you can also see this starting to be rapid transition to renewables, solar and wind, and you know, those significant chunks of energy in some parts of the world that are produced by nuclear processes. And in a sense those lie outside of the biological realm, right? Because they're they're extracted from the, the carbon economy. And so can you imagine this sort of more fully renewable future in which we've detached ourselves from the carbon economy in a, in a way that helps?
2: I can imagine it, but we have to remember that almost all those technologies will have their downsides. You know, I consider habitat destruction and modification as one of the most important human effects, and that's not going to change with expending or with gaining access to even more energy sources than we now have.
0: Yeah. I mean, that I think that's exactly the downside is then every individual and every entity has more power to exert on the world around them, and that may result in more destruction.
1: So does that mean that if physicists figure out how to make fusion reactors that can provide, you know, cheap, renewable, sustainable energy that is abundant, that that won't have as much of an impact on transforming human societies as we might like?
2: Well, it'll have an effect, no question about it. It'll have a huge effect. But what exactly it'll be is a little hard to say. And I am anything but an expert on this subject.
1: (laughs) Uh, Neither am I. (laughs) But I, I do think that what I appreciated about the book, as a biologist, but then thinking about, you know, these human challenges that we face, is that it does provide almost like a conceptual framework you know, based on this idea of power and how we've accumulated it, how we apply it and use it. I guess maybe the currency is energy, but how we apply the the power. And perhaps if more people kind of viewed their place in the world from this perspective, maybe it would change the way they behave.
2: Well, and I appreciate that. I mean, I did write it as a a sort of a, a framework for how to think about things, but at the same time, I think it's also important to realize that humans follow entirely in the footsteps of previous episodes in the history of life. We're unique in many, many ways, but in the way that we have added to the increase in power over time is entirely consistent with the patterns we've seen for three and a half billion years.
1: Yeah, so if, if we were to go to another planet, for example, it's very likely that given sort of a planet of the same age, sort of a similar sort of biosphere that we might encounter very similar patterns to what we see
2: here on Earth. That's my point of view.
0: Well, great. I think that might be a good place to wrap up. It's been fantastic to talk to you, Gary. Uh,
2: and let me also say that I think you, you've really read that book very carefully, and I really appreciate that.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. It was our pleasure. We always end by asking our guests if there's anything else they'd like to say
2: that we haven't covered. Not that I can think of straight away. I think for me, it's really important to think about humans in the larger context, not just in the context of the environment, in the context of history. You know, we're part of a long system that has existed here for millions, billions of years. And I think that perspective is important. Great. Perfect place to end.
1: Yeah, well, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us.
2: Thank you, and I really appreciate it. I enjoyed doing it.
1: Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, let us know via X, Facebook, Instagram, or leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you don't, we'd love to know that too. Write us at info at Thanks
0: to Steve Lane, who manages the website, and Molly McGid for producing the episode.
1: Thanks also to Dana De La Cruz for her amazing social media work. Keating Shamiri produces our awesome cover art.
0: Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida and the National Science Foundation for support.
1: Music on the episode is from Poddington Bear and Tieran Costello.